we've been um we're in the book of Acts. We've been talking in the book of Acts for the last couple of weeks, and and I found that I was actually able to stay in the theme by staying in the book of Acts and still looking at fatherhood, which is pretty amazing. Um, let me open with this. There's actually been some surveys carried out uh, over the years about uh, fathers and the faith of their children. And uh, one very famous one was conducted in Switzerland uh, quite a while ago, but um, the details are still sort of the same. Uh, it was carried out to determine the likelihood of religion in general carrying on to the next generation. And uh, here's some of the findings that they found. If both the father and the mother attend regularly, 33% of their children will end up as regular churchgoers, and 41% will end up attending part-time or irregularly. Only a quarter of their children will end up not practicing at all. That's the stats that are out there at the moment. If the father is irregular and the mother stays regular, only 3% of the children will, will become regulars themselves. And a further 59 will be irregular like their dad. 38% of those kids will be lost. If a father is non-practicing and the mother is still regular... 2% of children will become regular worshippers and 37% will attend part-time. Over 60% of their children will be lost to the church, statistically speaking. They then turned the figures around and looked at the other side of the coin there. They said if the father is regular but the mother is irregular or non-practicing, the percentage of children went from 33% to 38% who would actually be full-time churchgoers. And if there was an irregular mother, yeah, if, it was a, if it was a non-practicing mother, it was 38%. If it was an irregular, it went up to 44%. The idea was that loyalty to father's commitment grows in proportion to mother's laxity, indifference, or hostility. When neither parent practices, only 4% of children will become regular attenders and 15% will be a regular attendance to church. 80% will be lost to the faith. The conclusion was this. If a father is solid and regular in their expression of faith, and in particular church attendance, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers in their adult life. If a father has faith but is somewhat inconsistent, regardless of mum's devotion, between half and two-thirds of their offspring will find themselves coming to church regularly or occasionally. The role of a father in the family in regards to his kid's faith really does matter. And as we read the book of Acts, as we have been the last few weeks, we're going to find a story in chapter 16 about how one father's faith encounter transformed his entire family. So if you have your Bibles or if you need to follow the screen, you can. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 16 and we're going to go verses 16 to 34. This is Luke recording this. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to her, The Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, to command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them before the ma to the marketplace to face the authorities. 
They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Now, Paul and Silas are having a pretty bad day. They had a bad few days. Who, who hates disruption? Like, I, I'm a concentration, I need to be in the zone when I'm concentrating on something. You know, if I'm doing a little model, nothing, I've got tunnel vision for that model. I hate even the quietest of sounds. You know, if I'm trying to work out on music in my, in my, in my study at home, and the TV's next door, I can't handle it. It's like, I, I really don't like li- even the light little distractions. So imagine this crazy chick going, These men are the most high from the most high God! Rah! For days, following them around. And it wasn't some nice, oh, these boats are people are something to listen to. This is, this, is, this is like really out there, off-putting stuff. It wasn't patronizing. This was downright rude and, 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 and awful. Paul's had enough. He turns to her. He tells the demon in her to go. And suddenly she's restored to complete health and in her right mind. It's pretty good news for her, though. She's excellent. She's got her right mind again. She's free from that demon thing in her head. Not so good for her owners. The owners realize they're losing some cash out of this. And, uh, and their punishment, and, the boy, and Paul and Silas receive a punishment for good, doing good. And that punishment is a public beating and a night in the stocks in the prison. Which they turn into a worship night. I mean, this was all in the day's work for a first century preacher. Yeah, you know, I often wonder how modern Western Christians might respond if we got put into the same predicament. Yeah, you know, if it was illegal to preach the gospel in Australia, how on earth would we function? Yeah, you know, if we were going to locked up, tortured, and beaten, and put into stocks because we preached the gospel in the street and create, created a bit of an uproar, I wonder how we'd respond. Enough of that for now. <laughs> now the jailer has been given his orders: lock these guys up really securely. And ancient jailers and governments weren't too concerned about humane treatment for prisoners. There was no Amnesty International back then. There was nothing that was going to uh, you know, preserve their, their, uh, their human rights or dignity. The stocks mentioned in this were in the middle of a jail cell. They weren't up against the wall. They were in the middle. And they had more than one set of holes. So a jailer could spread a prisoner's feet as wide apart as he would like and leave them like that. 
which would, uh, when you combine that with the beatings that they received, and the cuts and bruises and the nakedness and the cold of the night and the stocks, that would be a really uncomfortable night ahead. The jailer was not the sort of guy to mess around with either. He would, have been, he would have been pretty tough with his job and he would have been a little bit lacking in the sympathy department. You know, it's, you know if, if he was at my school in my younger years and he met with my careers counsellor at my high school, I shudder to think what that conversation would have sounded like. But I wrote a script anyway. So, son, you've got a passion for people at the end of their life. What are you thinking? Like palliative care, grief counselling? Uh... Yeah, probably. I reckon I can make a real difference. I came from Noble Park. That's how they talked. (laughs) But it says in your school reports that you have no empathy for others and you're going to struggle in tertiary study. Um, yeah. But I've got a good bedside manner. My mum said so. (laughs) Um, okay then. Then show me a smile. No, that's a scowl. Show me a... Oh, where's all your teeth? Oh, I follow Collingwood. No, I'm... (laughs) (laughs) I lost them having too many fights. Well, son, have you considered the jail system? I hear death row is paying pretty well. What do you say? That probably would have been the counselling that this guy would have got. What we have here is a rough and tough sort of guy who works hard and probably plays hard too. But we also see he's a loving guy committed to feeding, loving and caring for his family. You know, He's probably a lot like my, le- my late stepdad, Trucky Ross. He was a trucky, big and burly, tough guy, rough guy, but loving guy. Probably like some of our dads that we've experienced in our time. Probably a lot like some of us are and definitely what I would be if I were a dad. But suddenly this tough guy has been hit with an earthquake on two fronts. The physical earthquake has woken him up. And he's gone next door to work to check out what's happening. And that's when the second one hits. This time it's an emotional earthquake. He sees the prison doors all wide open and his crisis is suddenly clear. If a prisoner escapes, the jailer will be served the punishment that his prisoners would have got. And there were people in there waiting for beatings, waiting for floggings. Some were waiting for death. So he pulls out a sword to top himself because it's quicker for him to take himself out rather than the Romans who were reputed of doing the worst uh, executions in, in, in history. That's why Jesus was born into that particular time, in that particular time, era. In his emotionally fragile state, his flesh tells him to end it all. Thankfully, Jesus saw otherwise. And it's there in the aftershock of the earthquake that he finds hope. And it's a hope that will save his entire household if he responds the right way. We see in our passage that this burly knockabout tough guy does just that. In the wake of both the physical earthquake and the emotional one that came with it, he displays a handful of things which led to his entire household coming to Jesus and moving forward in faith. These three things on the surface don't sound like tough guy things. But in the spiritual realm, only the toughest people can do them. So here we go. Three things that dads can model that will revolutionize their spiritual home. As demonstrated by a Roman jailer in Philippi. 
The first step for this jailer was humility. The ability to come humbly before God and to others who can help you know him. We read that when he hears that all the prisoners had actually remained at the prison, it causes him to stop and ponder what's going on here. He could easily have gotten rough, grabbed them all by the scruff of the neck, chucked them all back in their cells and locked it up. But there's something in him that can't. Maybe he's heard the words of the slave girl and he's gotten to thinking about it over the night. Maybe he's found out more about Paul and Silas through the legal channels because of his position in society. In any case, he realizes that an undeniable power accompanies these two fellas in this prison cell. And what he is seeing is no accident. All of a sudden, the big tough guy is not ashamed to fall at their feet in an act of surrender. He's not ashamed to undo their stocks and bring them in to meet his family. And he's not ashamed to ask the $64,000 question, what must I do to be saved? He says this, I acknowledge the turmoil, I acknowledge the earthquake, I acknowledge my need, and I acknowledge to you guys that you seem to have the answer that I must be looking for right now. Proverbs 3.34, which is echoed by Peter and James, says this, He mocks proud mockers, this is about God, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. In the Gospels, we read the words of Jesus through one of his parables. It says, I tell you that this man, he's referring to a guy there, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, in the mentoring program that I run at school, that Jen and I are involved in now we, we have some interesting conversations with some of the kids there was a doozy on Friday between the girls and, and us but that was funny but when I first started one of the boys was we started to discuss the issue of putting your mobile phone away during the group process and one of these kids looks up at me and then tells me you know what I'm here you might be setting the rules mate but I'm here to win I'm here to win I'm in charge of here not you my body language and my size pretty much told him he'd lost already and the phone quickly disappeared <laughs> but it did highlight the attitude kids can pick up if we don't educate otherwise humility is a trait which sounds weak but requires the greatest of strength and the strictest of self-control it is the birthplace of submission to rules and the law it is the birthplace of putting others above yourself Humility sets the groundwork for a number of other successful traits in us. If exercised right, it will provide a fantastic Christ-like example for your kids. And this jailer in our story was right where Jesus wanted him to be with his attitude in order to receive the, the ministry he and his family so desperately needed. He displays humility. Then he displays servanthood. The guy who was employed to inflict pain and who was under orders to treat these new prisoners poorly defies all that and chooses to serve instead. We see that his response to the gospel here is to serve the men of God. He treats their wounds and he ensures their personal welfare. He goes to great length and huge risk to his own position for the sake of the welfare of another. 
Some scholars even suggest that he and his family were baptized in the same prison compound where the same body of water was that was used to wash their wounds. In Matthew 20, Jesus told his disciples, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In God's economy, greatness comes not by the number of toys we accumulate, and not climbing the social or corporate ladder, but by the way a person engages in serving others. 1 Peter 4 tells us this, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. I will offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If you speak, you should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If you serve, you should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. I've seen over time that servanthood is best modeled by our fathers servanthood was best modeled to me by my stepdad as a boy I learned that service was to be an outward expression of devotion it was not a replacement for devotion but it was a, a, a natural byproduct it was not a rep- it was I learned this by going with my dad to uh, to 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 um to um Saturday, you know with dad on on church on Saturdays and we pick up a paintbrush and work in the place I learned this by going in the car with him to somebody's house and helping him move house or, or unload a trailer for them or do something like that. I learned it on Sunday morning when Dad drove the big 22-seater bus that the, bu- the church owned at the time and, and we picked up a whole heap of Samoans down in a community so that they could all come and worship together. I learned this many week mornings when the church was open at 5 a.m., for, uh, more, for weekday prayer sessions so that all the people who worked could come and pray before they went to work and it was a quiet place where they could do that and not in, wake up their kids we could do that here you know and I learnt that by going with him before he went driving trucks in the school holidays in Galatians 6 Paul writes this let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. See, when we, do, when we serve and when we do good things for others without complaint or weariness, we reap a harvest. Now, I'm not suggesting work to exhaustion, but I am saying don't get mad because someone phones with asking a favor. Part of that harvest we reap is that our kids catch what we have and do. We learned on Mother's Day that the welfare and the needs of others and servanthood was actually taught by Bathsheba to Solomon, where she says, speak up for those who can't speak up for themselves. Philosophically, these things do come from our mothers. But more often than not, in practice, it comes from dads. It's caught from our dads in practice, even if mum does practice it. Humility servanthood and now the big one transparency the jailer has been baptized then takes the risk to a new degree by bringing the prisoners into his own home for a meal 
We've spoken this, about this a fair bit already. In Eastern culture, the act of eating a meal in your home with somebody else was one of the most intimate things a person could do. It was so powerful that bitter rivalries were laid to rest at the eating of a meal. The jailer brought the people of God into the innermost workings of his life, his home, without notice to his family, without telling the wife to clean up the house, without removing the bills off the fridge, without putting on the glossy veneer, knowing that they could walk into whatever the atmosphere was from what was said or done just previously. Have you ever walked into a room when people have been arguing? Even if they don't say it or show it, it's electric. This jailer, in his newfound faith, was not worried about putting his whole life on display for these godly men. In, John, in 1 John, the apostle calls for transparency before God. He says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word is not in us. The Apostle James called for believers to be transparent before each other. He says this, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. That's pretty open. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church and pray over them. Anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make them well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Transparency is the opposite of hypocrisy. And when it is found in fathers, it does a whole lot of good for their kids. I remember some years back that a father I knew regularly took his sons out for father's son time. He would often, but he would always sit them down and he would tell them this. You know what, son? I promise you that I'm going to be the best example I can possibly be. But you know what? I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes. I know a few fathers have done this. And instead of making sure that they are the ultimate authority in this boy's life, they said, you know what? Make God your ultimate, you know, your ultimate hero and make Jesus your ultimate example. That was the instructions. You, go, you know, one of these guys had an extramarital affair and still kept his family because his sons knew that he, would, you know, he was open and honest about his shortcomings. These men were honest about where they were at spiritually and they were open to their families emotionally. In one particular family, there's some really well-balanced fellows there. They're all you know, married and doing really well. Two out of the three are serving the Lord today and statistically that's pretty good. The third's on his way. He'll get there. I've also seen others do everything in their power to keep the veneer of perfection intact at all costs. If you want your kids to have the best shot at maintaining the faith you as fathers stand for, the biggest advice I can give after 19 years of working with kids is this. Be transparent with your wife and kids. Let your wife know your weaknesses so that she can proactively support you. And let your kids see you own up to your mistakes along the way. 
Never project perfection. Instead, promote transparency. Successful fathers will be marked by three things. Humility, servanthood, and transparency. As we come to the communion table this morning, and we stop and ponder this, we can actually see all those three traits in the person of Jesus Christ. He was completely open about who he was. And the Gospels present a no-holds-barred account of him and his humanity. We see his emotional state time and time again. We see his frustration. We see his anger at the temple. We see his frailty and his hunger at temptation. We see his deep fear in Gethsemane. We see his servanthood. Where the author of life, as Peter calls him at the start of Acts, actually takes the role of a slave and washes his disciples' feet. And he came to earth in the most humble of ways, despite his heavenly glory, as Philippians 2 says. In fact, it says this, Philippians 2, Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. It's this Jesus that we remember today. For some of us here as fathers, you know, as a fantastic example for, to be able to project to our kids and to point to for our kids. For all of us, our great example of life itself. There was a song that went, there's a chorus that went in the 80s. And the last line said this, The master of the earth became a servant of no worth, and he paid a king's ransom for my soul. That's a bit of old school from one of the bands I used to listen to back then. We're going to come around the time of communion. Fathers, dads, take those three things, bring them into your home. Be humble. Pride will get you nowhere and God opposes the pride, the proud. Serve where you can. Serve with your family. Serve with your kids. I'm not talking about just being at church every Sunday. I'm not, please understand, I don't have an agenda to try and bolster attendance here. You know, I'm actually just saying, if you model servanthood in one way or another, in your community, in your home, to, to your wife, in all those different ways, your children will see that and will catch that. And be transparent. No one expects perfection. So don't, project, don't present yourself as such. If you are transparent with your life, your kids' world will not be shattered when you mess up. Just be transparent, be honest and open about where you're at with your kids. And they will respect you for that. Those are three great things. But let's worship Jesus and let's come around time of communion and remember the cross. Let's come to a time of prayer right now.